Frank is going to come and read and preach Exodus chapter 1 for us. So will we turn to Exodus chapter 1, and you'll find that on page 58 in our Pew Bibles. And uh, we're going to read from verse 1, the Israelites oppressed. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pitom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields, in all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summons the midwives and asks them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl lives. You might like to turn to page 58 in our Bibles as we look at Exodus chapter 1. I wonder if anybody recognizes these famous first lines. It was the best of time. It was the worst of times. That's the opening line of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. 
whereas Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karina begins, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. While J.K. Rowling starts her Harry Potter series with Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of Number 4 Privet Drive, we're proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. The book of Exodus, uh, which we're reading this morning, begins with the word, and. Our translation misses that out because all of us have been dutifully taught by our English teachers not to start our sentences with a conjunction. But that's precisely what the author of this second book in the Bible does. Why? Well, it immediately alerts us to the fact that this story is a continuation of the one that has just gone before. Glance back, if you will, to Genesis 46, verse 8. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is, Jacob and his descendants who went to Egypt. Now look at Exodus 1, verse 1. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. And there we have the names, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and so on. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. In the book of Genesis, in chapters 12, 15, and 17, you may remember God had made a promise to Abraham the man he called out of idolatry to know, love, and trust him. And God sealed that promise in a covenant. That covenant, which included the sign of circumcision to Abraham and his children, wonderfully fulfilled in the sacrament we've been celebrating this morning uh, in baptism. Uh, God made that covenant with Abraham which included three key components. God made a promise that Abram's descendants would become a great nation. God made a promise that Abram's family would inherit the land of Canaan. And God made a promise that just as he said in Genesis 3 verse 15, a Savior would come who would crush the serpent's head. And so a seed of Abraham would emerge who would be a blessing to the nations of this world. So Exodus 1 is a continuation of the book of Genesis. That's why it begins with the word and. But 400 years earlier, it looked as though the first of these great promises were in jeopardy. It looked as though famine would wipe out the family of Abraham. But in his wonderful providence and grace, God arranged things so that in the midst of turmoil, Joseph, one of Abraham's great grandsons, became prime minister in Egypt. Joseph, you may remember, gathered grain during the years of good harvest so that Egypt and the surrounding nations could survive the years of famine. And Joseph extended this relief to his entire father's family. 
The brothers whose names are found here in verses 2 and 3 are familiar to us through Joseph's amazing Technicolor dream coat. And they moved to live in Egypt and enjoyed Joseph's provision. And now from just 70 who had originally made that journey, after 400 years, number one promise made to Abraham had been fulfilled. From meager beginnings, the Hebrews had become a great nation. Look at how verse 7 puts it. The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. How do you say the same things four times over? Well, verse 7 does it pretty well. The sons of Jacob were fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They became an exceeding exceedingly numerous, so that they filled the lands. Well, that was very good news for the people of the covenant. That is, it was good news for our ancestors. Because remember, as followers of Jesus Christ, this is not just the story of the Jews. This is our story. What is it that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10? All these things concerning the Israelites happened as examples and were written down for our admonition. So this story is our story. But unfortunately, this population growth was not good news for Pharaoh. For while the covenant people of God became numerous, a new king, verse 8, came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph, and he resented the numerous Hebrew presence. Instead of welcoming the people of God, he was afraid of the people of God. The Egyptian ruler was intimidated by their numbers. And so as others have done before him, and many more have done since, Pharaoh decided to deal harshly with a group of people. He put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, verse 11. But the more he oppressed them, we read in verse 12, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. This made their lives bitter with hard labor, verse 14. They had to work with bricks and mortar and in all kinds of work in the fields. One of the most interesting programs on television, I think, is Who Do You Think You Are? And in one of the recent episodes, Robert Rinder, Judge Rinder, discovered that his great-grandfather had been a Jew in what was then Russia as the Nazis invaded. His great-grandfather was put to slave labor in a munitions family factory in Germany, and the rest of his siblings were exterminated in the gas chambers. That was only 75 years ago, 15 years before I was born. So let's not think that the events of Exodus chapter 1 are peculiarly out of date. The Hebrews, we read, were reduced to slavery. They were put to hard labor. And the midwives, verse 15, were ordered to engage in infanticide and to kill the baby boys. Do you remember another time when an insecure king 
ordered the extermination of all baby boys. Fortunately, however, verse 17, the midwives feared God rather than men, and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. Midwives' jobs are to preserve life, not to destroy it. And so highly regarded are these remarkable Hebrew women that verse 15 uh, gives us their names. Isn't this interesting? Pharaoh, the great king of Egypt, is not mentioned by name. But here, these two women's names are preserved for all time, for posterity. Isn't that wonderful? Even as today... We honor the names Oscar Schlindler and Corrie ten Boom for uh, helping the Jews at the time of the Holocaust. So these remarkable women, Shepra and Pua, are memorialized here in Scripture for their honoring of God rather than obeying the edicts of a no-name godless despot. And so verse 20, God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Isn't that a lovely word, kind? There's a peculiar blessing in obedience. God was kind to the midwives, even as they preserved life, so they were allowed to become the givers of life. Uh, do you remember the incident uh, where Eric Little discovered when he made a principal decision in his life, those who honor me, I will honor, First Samuel 2. Those who despise me will be disdained. Well, now here God honors these midwives who honored him. Well, now, what are we to make of this story and how can Exodus chapter 1 make a difference to us at the start of September 2018? Let me make three observations and applications which we glimpse here, but which will be expanded and elaborated through the entire book. Firstly, God's promises are always fulfilled. Secondly, the fear of God is far more important than the fear of men. And three, God's delight and desire is to liberate, to rescue, and to save. So then, first of all, God's promises are always fulfilled. In part one of this great story, that is the book of Genesis, God made an agreement, a covenant with Abraham. And through him, he made a promise to his called out to his special people that he would make them a great nation, that their family would inherit the land, that his offspring would include a snake crusher who would destroy the power of the evil one. And here, in spite of the challenges and the troubles and the famine, here we can see how the people of Israel became so numerous that they terrified the king of Egypt. God's promises were being fulfilled. Now, as yet, the people had not inherited the land. But that's why this book is called Exodus, 
The Hebrew people have yet to make their exit, their journey out from Egypt to Canaan. But as promise number one concerning their numbers is being fulfilled, does that not give us renewed confidence that promise two will be fulfilled as well? And as if, as if we will soon discover in this exciting adventure that Israel will make a journey to the place of fulfillment, can we not also anticipate that the seed of Abraham will yet be born who will triumph over sin and suffering and Satan? In Acts chapter 7, there's a very interesting verse where Stephen, the first Christian martyr, saw this very clearly as he was about to be stoned. This is what he said. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, that's in Acts chapter 7, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. And at that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. Moses? Could this be the liberator who would lead his people to inherit the land? Could this be the savior who would destroy the power of the evil one? Well, we'll see. But as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise, the number of our people in Egypt increased. God's promises are always fulfilled. A couple of weeks ago, I sat in the green room of the BBC waiting to deliver the second of that morning's thought for the day. And I got in a conversation with a fellow contributor uh, in the morning program who, in my company, in no uncertain terms, berated the church for failing to keep up with the rapid social and sexual changes within society. And he said this to me. He said, in 20 years' time, there will be no church. Now, I am under no illusions whatsoever concerning the challenges, challenges facing the church in contemporary society. And I am perfectly aware that there is no guarantee concerning the future of either the Presbyterian Church in Ireland or this congregation. None. But what I do know, and what I did say to my fellow contributor, is that the church worldwide is now larger than it has ever been in history. And in spite of what is common perception, it has grown. It has survived over the past thousands of years, while every other institution, government, and nation state, great or small, has come and gone. Please know this. God's promises are always fulfilled. And that's the first observation and application. The church is here to stay. And secondly, the fear of God is far more important than the fear of men. Who was it who defied the great Pharaoh of Egypt? Who was it who honored God more than the uh, fearing, defying the evil king? Some great general, some almighty 
multimillionaire with vast resources and power and infinite wealth, two lady nurses. Isn't that significant? Look at what it says specifically in both verses 17 and 21. They did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do, that is to kill the baby boys, because they feared God. The fear of God is far more important than the fear of man. Part of the strategy of the serpent from Genesis chapter 3 was to thwart the purposes of God, to thwart the seed of the woman, to prevent it from bringing salvation. But for all his malevolent influence and satanic strategies, he was no match for these two women midwives who were controlled and dedicated to God. And their confidence in the person and purposes of God enabled them to be courageous in obeying the Lord. How can Christian people face tomorrow? How can Christian people survive in the face of increasing hostility? How can Christian students go off to university confident in their faith? How can you survive in your workplace or be fruitful in the location of your front line? And the answer is by fearing God rather than what men may say. Claire and I have just returned from New York where we were over to see our son Robert. Believe me, we have been walked off our feet. And Robert, our son, loves running. Every year, thousands of people run the New York Marathon, 26 miles. The winning time is two hours, 25 minutes, and 53 seconds. In 1982, Linda Downs was the last person to complete that race. It took her 11 hours. She had cerebral palsy, and she ran with the help of crutches, When asked why by a reporter, she said she did it because I thought if I could do it, it might be an inspiration to others and maybe they would try some big thing as well. And then she added, the last 11 miles were an act of God. What do you mean an act of God, asked the interviewer. Well, with 11 miles to go, I ran out of my own strength. I didn't have any more. I finished the race on borrowed power. As the midwives learned, no, as Shipra and Pua learned, all who trust in God depend on borrowed power, the power of God himself. So that's the second observation and application. The fear of God is far more important than the fear of man. And thirdly and lastly, God delights and desires to liberate, to rescue, and to save. Pharaoh puts slave masters over the Hebrews, verse 11, in order to oppress them. 
like Robert Rinder's great-grandfather. The Israelites were dehumanized. They were abused. They were enslaved. They were oppressed. Verse 12, they were worked ruthlessly. And like Naomi in the book of Ruth, their lives were made bitter. But the book of Exodus is all about the God who rescues, who liberates, and who saves people from slavery. During the months of August, we did a study in our evening service on Paul's letter to Titus. And in it, in Titus chapter 3, there's a very telling sentence. At one time, writes Paul to the younger man, Titus, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. At one time, without Christ, without the serpent crusher, we were in a state of slavery. Some here know that only too well because you have felt it. Others have been oblivious to our condition. Some of us realize very vividly that once we were caught in a prison from which we could not escape unless somehow someone opened the lock and liberated us. Others went about what we were doing with blind abandon, little comprehension pertaining to our imprisoned state. But, it says in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior came. That, that word kindness in Titus chapter 3 is exactly the same word as was used of the midwives in Exodus 1 verse 20. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of any righteous things we had done, but because of His great mercy. And so the third great message of this book in Exodus is that God delights and desires to liberate, to rescue, and to save. That has always been God's purpose. It always will be God's purpose. And so, the invitation to every single one of us this morning is to trust in Him. God's promises are always fulfilled. He will build his church. The gates of hell will never prevail against her. The fear of God is far more important than the fear of man. To be in the minority with God is to be in the majority. And God's delight and desire is to liberate, to rescue, to save. And if either you or we are ever tempted to doubt that, we look at the cross where Jesus shed his blood in order to liberate, to rescue, to save us from those ancient enemies of slavery and sin and Satan, and to lead us to his rest. Our great and gracious Lord, we bless you for your word, and we bless you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Apply what is appropriate to our hearts and our conditions, our Heavenly Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we may be your people in our generation. 
And we pray for Christ's sake and glory. Amen. And so we pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father, we praise you that you are a God who always fulfills your promises. That this is not a world without you, however brutal and black it may at times feel. And so, Father, we pray with faith and confidence. May your kingdom come. Father, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, send the seed of Abraham to crush, finally, the head of the serpent. Come, Lord Jesus, to deliver your people once and for all. Come, Lord Jesus, to bring in the new creation where we might inherit the earth forever. And Lord Jesus, come in our midst. Come to lead us out of slavery to passions out of futility, out of despair, and into your marvelous light. And Father, as many organizations begin over the next couple of weeks in our church, we pray that your kingdom might come through them. We pray that you'd keep them aware of the reality of evil and of the hope of the gospel. Might that give them a deep focus on the saving rule of Jesus, and would you Use them to make your kindness known to many, and so to build us up in grace until glory. And Father, as many in the congregation return to school, we want to pray for our teachers, support staff, students, pupils, and parents. And Lord, we ask that your kingdom might come through them. We pray that they might shine like stars in a wicked and depraved generation. And Father, we pray for your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, we want to pray for our schools. We pray that they would be places that are deeply grounded in the truth, that build people up in the, in the truth, in true knowledge of this world, and in love for you and for our neighbors. We pray that they'd be places that educate our young people in ways that will enrich their lives and genuinely inspire and equip them to contribute to the welfare of our society. We pray for the leadership of schools locally to us and places where we have members of the congregation serving as governors. We pray that they would take a careful approach to social and sexual changes that are happening in our society at the moment. Help them to balance the apparent needs of particular individuals with the welfare of the whole school the consciences of Christian teachers, and may they be guided above all by the fear of you. We want to pray too for those heading back to university, whether for the first time or to return to studies, and we pray that they would go back confident in their faith, confident in your working and in your power, and ready to hold fast to the word of truth. Father, we pray too for the visit of Dr. Benini from Rwanda, we ask that you'd give him safe travel on Wednesday and that he'd feel welcome as he arrives here in Belfast. Father, we pray that you would use this trip to strengthen our partnership with uh, him and his church in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that we might be more ready to share out of our abundance with those who have need 
uh, as a result of this trip. And we pray that we might learn too uh, what it is to fear you and to walk with you from Dr. Benini. And Father, we pray that you would give us today our daily bread. We thank you for feeding us spiritually just now. And now we pray that you'd give us all the physical things that we need for our journey towards your rest. And we pray for those in special need, in need of health, in need of work, in need of homes, in need of friends, and in need of certainty about the future. And we take a moment just now to mention in our hearts those we are aware of. And so we ask all this, asking that you forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and that you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, the great and the small. We ask all this in Jesus' name, and to show our hunger and our hope, we say, Amen.